Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word, that it is truth. We pray now that you would use it in our lives to sanctify us, even as we hear it tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Her mom said goodbye last winter. Sometimes she cries in the dark. She's holding her new baby granddaughter close to her heart. Her spirit was wounded by sacred vows broken, beginning to heal. Her oncologist gave her good news. Now she's living to love for real. She knows how suffering feels. We all know how suffering feels. And you know you're alive when you taste your own blood. Open hands to the sky with your face in the mud. We all know how suffering feels. These lyrics are from a song by a group called The Choir. It's called We All Know. And they likely ring true to you. It's different for all of us. But we know how suffering feels. Tonight we're going to see a proper response to sorrow and suffering from the writer of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 because of its form as an acrostic poem and its central theme of God's word has been described as one, from one author as the alphabet of divine love. The verse we'll be looking into comes from the fourth letter of the alphabet, the Hebrew letter Daleth. You'll see that the psalmist is having a rough time of it in this section, but that it ends with him running to God. I'm going to read verses 25 to 32 to give us context. And then we'll focus in on verse 28. I'll give you a second to get there. Psalm 119, verses 25 to 32. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the ways of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. The poetry of our verse splits it into two separate sections, what I'm going to call the horizontal and the vertical. And I'll let them serve as our basic outline with some points under each. So verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. First, the horizontal. I use the word horizontal meaning it's about our experience of life here on earth. Sorrow isn't the experience of those in glory where there are no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain. Those are earthly, horizontal things. When you read this first phrase, my soul melts away for sorrow, it's like the psalmist is making a confession for all to hear. This is how I'm feeling right now. It's not good. I'm falling apart over here. We know from Ecclesiastes that sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad, and also that the, the wise heart is in the house of mourning. 2 Corinthians 7.10 reminds us that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. 
So let's time to look at three, let's take some time to look at three observations about sorrow. First observation about sorrow, and it may be obvious, but here it is, we will be sorrowful. Just by mentioning personal sorrow, I'm sure a time where you had significant suffering and sorrow in your life comes to mind. If you're having a hard time thinking of something, praise God for his loving providence for you thus far and be prepared and prepare yourself for the truth of Jesus' words to come true. In this world, you will have tribulation. For all of us, though, and the writer, sorrow and suffering feels personal. My. Not he, not she, not they. My. Sorrow hits personally. The phrase here, melts away, could be translated as drops or weeps or collapses. He's undone. He's much like Job in chapter 3. After losing his family, his wealth, his health, he's in despair, unable for a moment to look forward in hope. For us, we don't know to what extent or how sorrow will come to us, but when we find ourselves in the middle of it, don't try to just put on a stiff upper lip, as the British like to say. Instead, acknowledge your grief, be vulnerable before God, and trusted brothers and sisters in your cry. My heart melts away for sorrow. A second observation, that it's not his first time here. Go back a bit. Look at verses 25 and 26. They read, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. He's been here in the house of sorrow before, and God has lifted him up. Our present or future sorrow, regardless of what it is, surely is in our first, and it likely won't be our last. God will lift us up. He will comfort us. He will show us that he is enough for us, just like he showed Job. We can still worship in the midst of pain. We can still say, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. A third observation or maybe better, a question that we ask in light of our sorrow, is why the sorrow? Our text this morning dealt with some of the reasons for our sorrow. 2 Corinthians 1.6 says, If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Yet, we are often, often looking for a specific answer to the question, Why? To know why things are as they are is in the realm of the mystery of God's providence. What we do know as redeemed children of God, whatever the ultimate reason for our suffering, it's not payment for our sins. Jesus paid that price in the ultimate sense. It may just be life circumstances causing our sorrow. Death, sickness, pain, and the like could be the cause of the sorrow. Ultimately, though, the psalmist's struggle isn't simply being sad. Verse 25 informs us that his soul clings to the dust. As a writer for Desiring God, DesiringGod.org put it, and I quote here, dust here is not a generic metaphorical way of saying he is struggling. 
It's a pointed theological reminder of the brokenness that comes from humanity's fallen state. End quote. The end of Genesis 3, verse 19 reads, For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Along with the psalmist, we struggle from living in a fallen world and deal with the fallout that comes from our own fallen, broken state. Paraphrasing Charles Bridges, Jesus himself wept over these effects. He wept for Lazarus. Sin had slain him as it slays all who enter the world. Jesus wept over that. He wept over Jerusalem and what sin had done to a nation. He wept in Gethsemane over what sin had done to the world. The penalty for that sin, which he was about to bear, was so terrible, he wept. Our souls should be melting with sorrow, not just because we're sad from the circumstances we are in, but because of our sin before a holy God. Is that our response to our sin? Praise God that we and the psalmist are not left here, glued to the dust, struggling with heavy hearts over our sin and the effects of sin in the world. At the end of the section, we read, I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. So how does he go from clinging to the dust to running in the path of God's commands? That brings us to the second part of our passage, the vertical. The psalmist quits focusing his attention on his sorrow and looks up to God in prayer. Strengthen me according to your word. Some observations about this, about this prayer of the psalmist. First, it's a simple prayer. He's not praying for show like the Pharisee in Luke 18. He's broken, he's contrite like the tax collector in the same parable who simply said, God have mercy on me, a sinner, and went away justified. It's an earnest cry for help. Strengthen me. Revive me. Raise my soul up from the dust of life. We don't need to get flowery with our language or try to quote the Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision. Just cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. A second observation is that God breathes life. When we're in the dust, needing strength, Remember that in Genesis 2, God formed man from the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. This same breath of life shows up again in 2 Timothy 3.16 in connection with the word of God. Here we read that all scripture is breathed out by God. Just like he breathed life into our bodies, he breathes life into our souls through his word. The psalmist has already experienced this. Look again at verses 25 and 26. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. When you're down, cry out to God. Remember, he is the one that breathes life into your souls. This brings us to our third and final point. It's only through the word of God that we are strengthened and revived. Did you notice in 2 Timothy 3 that God breathed life into a book, not directly into our souls? How does faith come? By hearing, 
and hearing through the word of Christ. When we read and we hear the Bible, we breathe in that breath of life. It's the word that raises us up when we're knocked down. It's the word that renews us when we're unsettled. It's the word that restores our joy when we're depressed. It's the word that gives hope when our heart and soul is downcast. C.H. Spurgeon is quoted as saying, there's only one book that can comfort our hearts. There's only one book that can bring encouragement to our souls. All other books in the world are dead books. There is only one book that is a living book that can breathe comfort and encouragement into our troubled hearts and souls. And it's this book, the Bible. This book is able to bind up the brokenhearted. It's able to encourage the discouraged. It's able to comfort the crushed. It's able to empower the empty. This book is a living book and brings living comfort to those who cling to the dust. And it's able to get them up and running in the path that God has for them. Seems weird. Here we are, down, depressed, stuck to the dust, without strength, broken in ways that cause us to not even desire the Bible. What's the solution? The Bible. Not that our reading skills can overcome our fallingness, but the word itself is life-giving breath. That word may come to us by our own reading. It may come to us through preaching. It may come to us through song. It may come to us through our brothers and sisters. Colossians 3.16 reads, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. As we bring this to a close, let's help each other take our eyes off the horizontal, earthly experience of sorrow and raise them to God as we hear his words. Open the black hymnal to hymn number 364. We're going to read this hymn together. Notice as we read, the first verse is stating that our firm foundation is in the word. Then, in other verses, we get to listen to our brothers and sisters teach and admonish us in all wisdom as they speak the promises of God to us. He is doing all the talking in these verses. He is telling you who he is and what he's like. So hymn 364. As soon as I can find it. So let's read this together. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials, as thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all-sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume 
and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Lord God, we are often filled with sorrow. Strengthen us according to your word, we pray. Amen.